Welcome to Jolty, a podcast to help you lift your perspective above this jolty moment and focus on a new direction for our business and personal lives. Hi, I'm Maggie Wilkinson, CEO of Athena Global Advisors, and we're back with Jim McCann, founder and chairman of 1-800-Flowers, for part two of a conversation that was so rich with insights, we split it into two episodes. In part one, we discussed with Jim what an upside down, jolted holiday season will look like. A joltimus, if you will. And now, welcome to part two, the connection crisis. Faith and Adam, I'll let you take it from here. Hey, thanks, Maggie. It is so great to be Zooming with you again. We're going to be talking about connections and the connections between people. And, you know, this is not a recent crisis. Before the pandemic came upon us, there was a wonderful book called uh, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. Vivek Murphy, who was Obama's Surgeon General, wrote the book, and it really dug into how isolated and separated and lonely we were. And again, this was before the pandemic. So we've got a real issue on our hands, and that's one of the subjects we're going to talk to Jim about, and particularly why he thinks companies and brands need to pay deeper attention to this problem and not let it just fester at a low level, but really highlight it and work to fight it. That's so fascinating. I'm sure that a few years ago, no CMO or CEO ever said, what are we going to do about our consumers' loneliness? But now we're hearing a lot about people's experiences, how they wish to connect, how they wish to feel each other's pain. Jim, I know your mission is to help people express and connect. How does that translate into creating experiences? Over the last couple of years, my little team of innovators in our shop worked on the efforts to make sure that each of our brands had an experience. We felt because we didn't have a lot of retail frontage, that we were primarily an e-commerce company, that it was important to engage with our customers and build relationships beyond transactions. And one of the ways we wanted to do that was through experiences. So for each of our brands, we built experiences. So no surprise in the Flowers brand, we'd long been doing flower design classes in our stores, but it was hit and miss and some stores did it well, but we decided to make it universal across the platform. Adam knows the story, but I'm willing to bet that when, uh, when uh, Maggie drags her next door neighbor Faith to a class because Maggie's husband gave her a gift certificate because uh, he went in to pick her up a, a bouquet for her for the anniversary and saw this sign about these classes and he says, I think Maggie really like this. And so he gives her the gift certificate for, uh, for two to go to a class. And Maggie drags Faith down to uh, the Tribeca store uh, and they go in and they spend two hours and they make an arrangement for the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday, each of them. They are with uh, uh, 18 other wonderful people. They have a couple of glasses of wine. They eat some Cheryl's cookies. They eat some, uh, uh, some uh, nice uh, Godiva chocolates from Simply Chocolate. And they have a wonderful time. They take pictures. They put them up on Instagram and, and uh, Pinterest and they're all excited. Yeah, people love to be connected, Jim. In fact, you even made a deal recently with a really lovely little startup called Alice's Table. They ran events, they built communities, a wonderful female entrepreneur. We talked about it back when we had breakfast in March. And then, well, um, we kind of know what happened next. Well, guess what? Uh, that's not so safe anymore. So we pivoted and we've moved all of those online. And uh, we partnered with a wonderful young lady named Alice who had a company called Alice's Table who had a flair for this. And, uh, and it was uh, two nights before that breakfast, Adam, that we had uh, dinner with uh, Alice and her team celebrating our partnership. 
And then two days later, uh, they're back in Boston calling saying, our world just went to hell in a handbasket here. What do we do? And we pivoted, or better stated, they pivoted. And now we're redoing all those experiences digitally. And it's much more successful than I ever thought it could be. And people are signing up for these classes in the tens of thousands. We deliver a kit to their home with all the flowers and all the tools and all the accoutrements and the vase that they need. They do a class online. I will confess, I see a little wine glass in a frame here and there, but, but we, create, we crave connectivity and we crave community and, we'll, and, and this living digitally will have to do. Now, I want to turn this into a personal direction for a moment. Family connections. Hey, Jim, would you mind sharing something that happened within your family, a kind of role reversal that I heard about? I don't know if any of you guys have had this experience, but I mentioned I have three kids grown. They have their own kids. This is the first time my wife and I talked about this just recently that I've noticed our kids parenting us. Dad, you can't be going to the office. You're in an at-risk group age-wise. Two emotions. It made me feel good and then said, well, maybe I'm slipping (laughs) into another category now. Just talk to us for about for a minute or two about how you got interested in the, the, the social disease and epidemic of loneliness, how it's amplified now, and what you're doing at Flowers to do our part in addressing it. Well, it's something that concerns me a great deal, Adam. We don't talk about it enough. I got interested in it by reading the Wall Street Journal. December of 2018, a couple of young folks out of the uh, young editors out of the Wall Street Journal, Washington, D.C. office wrote a a piece, was the center of the front page of the Wall Street Journal bottom section, a little piece, and then two full pages inside. And what they said was that my generation, the boomer generation, is the loneliest generation. And they said, for these reasons, we were the first generation that had divorce in great numbers. We were the first generation who moved away from where our families grew up to pursue careers and adventure. So divorce, moving away, we lived longer. So we outlived our money. We outlived our retirement savings, and we're the first generation that really embraced diabetes. So we have health issues, we're running out of money, we're living longer, and we're away from a family, and 27% of the women of that generation uh, live alone, adult women, because they either never got married or they're divorced. And 61% of all of us have, uh, have been through divorces. So you put all of those things together, poor health, not enough money, living away, no support system, estranged from your children, they contend that this is the loneliest generation. It was a sad piece, but it really woke me up to this, this, this disease, this phenomenon that we're experiencing. But not to be outdone, uh, Meredith and I have worked, uh, done some research and, and shared with you, Adam, and you back with us some other stuff. So, Jim, loneliness isn't limited to boomers, though, right? It's kind of a universal problem we're facing. The other generations are competing to be the loneliest generation. Now, here we have generations, you have millennials who say that uh, 41% of the time they're lonely. We have Generation uh, 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 X, uh, that uh, uh, Generation Z, which grew up digitally. I mean, they're social, they're contacted, they're always connected. 21% of them say they don't have a single friend. Not one. They're on Fortnite. They're in the games. They're living digitally, but not digitally connected in a a real and meaningful way. They're sitting next to each other, competing with each other on Fortnite. Right, but that's not a real connection. 
So it's one element of the mental health picture that really concerns us. And then you can add the level of grief and suffering this pandemic has caused. Yes. And uh, at, at Flowers and at Harry and David, one of our other companies where we do a lot of sympathy expression, we've started a whole body of work. And I'd love to get your input on this, guys. But in the last four months, I've had something approaching 10 situations where there's been a loss, a friend, a, a parent of a friend of mine, where Mary Lou and I certainly would have gone to the service. But we couldn't. There is no service. So what we're wondering, and we're starting to do some research on, and tapping into our friends like at SCI, the big funeral home company, how, what is the aftershock of COVID vis-a-vis how we, regardless of religion or in consideration of different religious rights, how will it change how we express ourselves and, and what rituals will evolve that, uh, around the death rituals, celebration of life, how will this change? It's already changed dramatically, but how will it normalize? It's fascinating because what we know about grieving, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and so forth, is based on the ability to come together and have closure. Yes. And when you take away the closure, it requires a whole re-engineering of the grief equation. I think it's going to be online too. I mean, you know. I'm- I think you're right. Yeah, you know, it's part of this new connection crisis that we're all facing. In fact, it's even hard to connect with your own feelings in a world that's lost the traditional protocols of mourning. Like, how do we think about loss, our own losses, losses of people in our network? It's really hard to talk about it and even find the common footing. Jim, I'm curious, what's your business seeing? Well, what's happened is our sympathy business is up. Uh, It wasn't at first, but it is now. But the, the nature of the gifts have changed. So a lot more food gifts going to the home. So Harry and David's business is going through the roof because it's good quality, terrifically grown and produced food product. And the flower business has picked way back up on the sympathy side too, but it's not something going to a chapel. It's going to the home, a gift basket, a food gift, or a floral gift. We do that already in terms of we repurpose sympathy flowers for people in need in the community. Our florists have been doing that for decades. And we've ramped up that program. Uh, we don't, you know, pat ourselves on the back for, uh, about it, but it's something we do naturally. I want to get back to the loneliness conversation for a sec. So in the Faith and I for years have done work where we've told brands that the best way to build relationships is to connect your customers to each other. By connecting your customers and by being the catalyst and engine for that, they will like and connect with your brand better. So Jim, we're doing that really with, uh, with this Wisdo platform, which is something new we're connecting customers for the first time. So it'd be interesting to get your perception of how that fits, because we started that conversation before COVID. Now it seems like it's more important than ever. Yeah, tell us about wisdom. I, I think you're right, Adam. And I'm going to ask you uh, uh, to uh, use the term. I'm going to ask you to come back to in a second. What, what we've uh, been preaching at our company is vocabulary matters more than anything else. Faith, you taught the world that. Owning your own vocabulary is critical. And it was... January of this year, I was on a a telephone conversation with Meredith, and I remember we were both working hard, only I was walking on the Gulf of Mexico beach in Florida, and she was back in cold, rainy New York, working hard like she she should be. And she said, Jim, so what you're saying is... And 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 like she loves to do, we must say. Well, and she's awfully good at it. Yes, she is. But we were on the phone, and she said, so what you're trying to say, Jim, is... We need to change the vocabulary around here because right now they talk about acquiring customers. And you, what we're saying here 
is you want us to not think about acquiring customers, but think about earning relationships. That's good. Yeah. And I said, wow, Meredith, you're exactly right. You caught in a phrase the way we have to change the psyche of our marketers. Because if you think about serving people, if you think about connecting them to one another, Adam, it's a different mindset. If you assume that if you build a relationship and you serve that relationship, that you'll have an opportunity that when the transaction is appropriate, you'll get your fair consideration, I think you're marketing them. I don't think it's manipulative. I think it's, if you're genuine about it, I can serve you. If I can earn your attention, because Adam, you always talk about uh, this is a war for attention. Yes. If I can earn your attention by surprising you or getting you to cock your head a little bit different or sound a little different yes. and earn your attention to say, I want to serve you and I want to engage with you and I want to introduce you to others who feel like you do, then you have a platform for a relationship. So Adam encouraged uh, me to start to write this letter and we started this at the beginning of COVID and we just sent a letter uh, that's very much what I'm thinking that week about uh, Chris and I, what we're thinking about in terms of how we're feeling this week. And so it's very uh, reflective, but not too personal. And we started sending it every Sunday. We don't ask for a sale. We're just serving our audience. But we have about seven or 800,000 people a week now read our letter. Wow. And we uh, evolved to say- Brilliant, really. Please share with us your thoughts. Here's what we're thinking about. And, and the next one will be about this. Faith, Maggie, we're going to ask our customers to help us answer the questions you have today about how are these holidays going to be different? How will gifting be different? How will the connection be different? And how, that's where we get great interaction from, that great connectivity. So now it's become interactive. And so I'm terribly excited because now the people in our shop, all our staff reads us, they all send ideas to things that we should talk about. What we're doing is we're creating community out of here to four customers. Yes. You know, there's a phrase we always say in marketing, you got to be top of mind and you got to be top of wallet. But the way to do that is by being top of heart. And those letters make you top of heart. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Now, Adam, when we were doing that, you, you suggested to our management team, if you surprise people enough by your behavior, all of a sudden it's not so surprising anymore. Right. But you, you phrased it well, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, if you condition people, so basically I think what you said before is right. We were overwhelmed, and you mentioned the attention wars. Faith and I had in our book, Dictionary of the Future, which is now two decades old, the attention economy. Talk about words, future words. We predicted the attention economy, so it's here, clearly. And one way to get people's attention and get them to turn their head is to give them a little bit of a cognitive speed bump. Give them something in a new way so it wakes them up, like that Wall Street Journal story woke you up, and then they start to pay attention. Cognitive speed bump. I love this guy. Yeah, cool. So, Annie, if you sent you, you know, if you sent your rose on your birthday, or you know, or like your sympathy thing for your, you know, or Shiva thing if you lost somebody, talk about cognitive. That's more than a speed bump. I mean, that's like a roller coaster. Well, that's what Adam did with our management team when he said to them, "Who, who when we said we wanted to do Wisdo, they said, are you out of your mind?" What I mean by that is Wisdo. Adam and Meredith and I were in a conversation at breakfast. And Adam said, what would you like to do that you're not doing now? And so I said, I'd love to connect our customers one to the other. I said, because so often I come across somebody and they're having a tough time with something. Take the uh, good, good and bad. New mom home, new baby, pre-COVID, 
mother-in-law goes home, all of a sudden, her first baby, she's there alone with that, that first day that no one else is around, and she gets a panic attack. What do I do? I have to keep this, this little boy alive. What do I do? Now, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have been there before. If there's that one friend that she had that she could pick up the phone or go online with and say, I, I, I'm Wigan here. There's someone who's been there and done that. So I said, Adam, if we could find a way software-wise to allow our customers to say, I'm having a challenge with going to work for my first aid in this new place. I'm having a challenge with this. Or, and there's other people out there say, been there and done that, happy to help. And, he, and about two or three months later, I get an email from Adam and said, I knew that sounded familiar. And I found in my old notes, a company that I came across, a little company in Israel that's doing just that and they really don't have a business model. He introduced us. We wound up investing, and they're wonderful people, and the company's called Wisdom, and that's what they do. They pair people with one another, and people help one another just out of altruistic motivations. It's a, as they say in the old country, a beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike social platformers that rate people on popularity, core to the Wisdom model is they rate people on how helpful they are. So it inspires the good in people, and the altruism is there, and we know from a lot of research that altruism actually affects the brain, our dopamine receptors. We feel good when we help people. We feel good when we make charitable contributions. We feel good when we hear stories like Ken Langone. It's goodness by osmosis. We just feel good. So what do you think of, oh, go ahead, sorry, so sorry. So let me close the loop there. So while we're having a conversation with the board and our management team who is saying, Ken has lost it. He wants to put in his peer-to-peer help service, we sell flowers and gifts. And that's what Adam said to them. You have to have cognitive speed bumps to earn people's attention, to show them that you're different and you want to be thought of as different. And, and, and we need more. It's not just one. We need to do it with ever-increasing fashion, with the same goal in mind, to serve your community. So there's no doubt about it. We're lonely. And we need platforms like Wisdo to connect us. That's right, Faith. And we also need brands to connect us. But the only way a brand can do that is by speaking honestly and authentically. Jim, in your Sunday letters that you send out with your brother, you do that. You speak with balance and with wisdom and with compassion. But at the same time, you don't want people to think that the world is perfect. So how do you balance as a leader speaking about reality and speaking about hope at the same time? But real, real is important. And you don't want to be around a person who's uh, got the gray cloud over their head and is depressed all the time. You right. want people who are balanced and real. And most importantly, I think people, leaders, leaders that I admire and respect, like you guys. Thank you. Look, we have two choices. We can say, ah, oh, this sucks. And I don't like it. And every once in a while, we're going to get in that mood and we're going to do it. But I think we have a responsibility uh, for, uh, to our people that we work with, that we employ, our customers, our friends, our families, to say, okay, I'm going to have it down a minute or two or three. But then like entrepreneurs do, like futurists do, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and you say, I got to get on with this. And I think humor plays a big role in that too. Humor can help people get through things. Well, not everybody, not everybody's as funny as you are. No, no, but they, but they want to be... They want they, their funny bone itches to be tickled. I remember the first Saturday Night Live after 9-11, which was a big moment, right? Yeah. Lorne Michaels was on and with Giuliani, and Lorne Michaels said to him, tell me, Mayor, is it okay to be funny now? And I thought that was just a wonderful way. It was to funny. Kind of, it was funny, but it was also painful. because yeah. But it was a pin in the balloon of, of the sensitivity. You're right, Jim. It was perfectly placed. 
And in fact, the more we think about the power of connection, and that was a good example of it, the more we realize that it has a flip side, which is that we are now also disconnecting from the things that really matter to our lives. My son, uh, uh, James, and his wife and uh, two-year-old are staying at our, our house while we were out at the beach. And he sent me an email uh, yesterday saying, I have the uh, got junk guy coming to the house. He's taking those five TVs that have been in the garage for uh, uh, six years now. Anything else you want to add to the list because I'm getting rid of a lot of stuff for you. Don't you, won't you miss that Philco? <laughs> it was a great TV. <laughs> yeah, definitely decluttering. Well, she was, uh, you know, she recognized, Marie Kondo, that is, that we're looking for more meaning, spirituality, grounding, and that we're surrounded by stuff. And I think decluttering is part of a larger sort of rethink of consumerism in general. And how much do and, I really and need? And of our cocoon. I don't need anything. I got to declutter. But what I really like is when I get something from the grandkids. I had a, a birthday last week, and the grandkids, I said, I want things that they make. And when, yes. when they unwrap what they made and they're all excited to see your reaction to what they made for you or the right. frame they made for the picture that you asked for them, I'm more excited for their excitement. That, but those are the things that matter to me. You can't give me anything I need. Hey, Jim, you've been such a great guest and we're so thrilled to have you that I think you're entitled to do a little commercial for yourself. So tell us, in a world where people are seeking connections, how does gifting fit into that equation? I mean, what's more intimate and personal than sending something, a gift that they'll consume, whether it's chocolates or cookies or popcorn yeah. or Harry and David pears or right now in season our peaches, which are the best in the world. Uh, I, there's nothing more intimate to give as a gift than something you'll consume. On the other hand, look at what's not selling right now. I think a real tragedy is unfolding here in Champagne, France. Yeah. Champagne sales are absolutely tanked. Right. No champagne is seen, you know, wine sales are off the chart, but champagne sales seen as more celebratory of tanks. So there's a hundred, Adam, you'll be happy to hear this. There's a hundred million bottles in, in cellars in just in Champagne, France that are going unsold this year uh, because of the drop off. Of it sounds weddings. like it's a, that's a marketing opportunity to redefine and reframe yeah. celebration. Like you said before, we're, we're grateful to be alive. We're grateful that we're seeing goodness. I'm writing. He's talking. I'm writing. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jim, I want to move on a bit, stay on the theme, though, and ask you about two other connection crises that we are confronting as a society. The first is that the pandemic has disconnected us from so many of our healthcare needs that are not COVID-related. Think about those consequences. Over the last four months, this is a Dr. Scott Abel out at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. He's, a, he's in the same profession as uh, Adam's son, a, a neurosurgeon. And he told us that 150,000 people a month are diagnosed with cancer and start treatment. And those last four months, that's 600,000 people who haven't been diagnosed or started treatment. And another 650,000 were already in treatment, and half of them stopped coming for treatment. So that's a million people who have cancer and aren't taking any treatment for it. What's the consequence of that 12, 24 months from now? So let's talk about our connection to cities. Millions who are quarantined were actually living above them. Now we're in them. What's going to happen next with that? What happens to, to cities? What happens to Manhattan? 430,000 households in Manhattan have applied for a forwarding address with the post office. That's not people, that's households. 
so who are they? Well, they're not the people who live in the Jefferson uh, Jefferson projects, right? No. And and when uh, when the mayor says, "Oh, we did this wonderful job of converting people to being able to work from home," and the teachers did a wonderful job of par- preparing curriculums, but let's face it, uh, less than uh, uh, one third of everyone who lives in public housing has no access to the internet, and they were all filled with kids. Those kids weren't studying; they weren't keeping up. It seems like cities need to redouble their commitment to making sure every tool is available to everyone. Yes. So you have this wonderful tool of technology and behavioral learning capabilities, which has the ability to bridge the divide. But it's actually, in some cases, making the divide wider if you don't have access to it. So, Jim, you've given Adam and me and our listeners so much to think about and learn from. I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. What's the most important thing about being a leader, the one piece of advice you give? We have a quote hanging in our office that we refer to regularly, and we just did yesterday, when someone said, oh, this is what people want, this is what, and it is a quote from Maya Angelou, and what Maya Angelou said, people will forget what you did, people will forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And that's a business we're in, of helping people to tell other people how they feel. And it's an awfully good business to be in, because it's so true. You know, we have shame moments in our own little walking around minds every day is something we did 30 years ago to comes back to us that we're still embarrassed about. And uh, it's learning to cope with those by realizing, let me live today in a way that makes people feel better. And we have, we have amazing power. We can change how somebody feels with a compliment, with a note, with a text, with an email, with an arm around the shoulder before it was deadly. And we so rarely use that power. Well, I just want to say that you are definitely a futurist. I officially name you a futurist. And Do I get a ring? A Dakota ring? Yeah, sure. (laughs) And you have made us feel so wonderful. You are so engaging and so charming and so interesting and so knowledgeable. No wonder you were in flowers, the most beautiful thing in the world. It's just been a pleasure getting to know you more deeply. And anything you ever need from us, we're here for you. Well, I love what you're doing. I, I think you're a, a great team. I think you're the. Uh, Thank you. I think you're the murderous row of the Yankees in terms of <laughs> futurists. <laughs> Thank you, folks. We'll see Thanks you soon. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.